0: Welcome to the Nobcast. Thank you for dropping by. This is where we simplify Bitcoin. I'm your host, Mary Victoria, and this podcast is sponsored by BitNob. BitNob is an easy-to-use app where you can automatically save, borrow, earn, send, and receive Bitcoin all in one place at the cheapest rates. Download BitNob, B-I-T-N-O-B, from the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store using the links in the show notes, or visit the website. At bitnob.com. That's B I T N O B.com. You're not gonna be the same after listening to this podcast episode. That's because by the time you get to the end, you will have a deeper understanding of the technology behind Bitcoin. In this episode, I interviewed Tim Akinbo. He is a Bitcoin developer, consultant, and advocate. If you've been curious about Bitcoin technology, he didn't leave any stone unturned in this episode. So buckle your seatbelts, subscribe to the podcast, drop a review, and without further ado, let's do the intro. Hi, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you.
1: Thanks for having me on your show,
0: Do you mind if you can introduce yourself so that our audience gets to know you a little better?
1: Definitely. Uh, So I go by the name Tim Akimbo. And uh, I have been involved in a number of things throughout my uh, life. Uh, But at the moment, I do a lot of uh, Bitcoin advocacy and evangelism. And uh, I'm a Bitcoin developer as well. I also do Bitcoin consultancy for individuals who want to get started with uh, maybe setting up things like a hot wallet or a cold wallet, hardware wallets, um, and also organizations or companies that are interested in either integrating with Bitcoin, you know, with the existing infrastructure or uh, who want to build applications um, on Bitcoin.
0: Wow, you're into a lot. That's really exciting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know.
0: So how did you get into Bitcoin? Like, what was the journey like for you?
1: Well, my journey was actually a very practical one. Um, When I was in in college, I used to do some freelancing and I would uh, work for, you know, individuals and corporations anywhere in the world, basically. And I would get paid in a digital currency called Eagle. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was in the early 2000s, probably yes. And um, I think a couple of years after, uh, you know, I was using Eagle primarily as a way to conduct commerce on the internet. Uh, this was before we had uh, Visa and Mastercards that could actually work online internationally. Uh, in my country, Nigeria, then, and um, so before all of that, you know, eGold was one of the few solutions that we could use to conduct commerce on the internet. But uh, you know, a few years after I was an active user of eGold, um, the whole company actually shut down. Right, there were some accusations that they were involved in money laundering and the website actually got seized by, I guess maybe the FBI or so. Uh, and so the whole service actually just became pretty much uh, unusable by any of the users of the system then. And a lot of people lost money. Well, I, didn't, I wasn't using it as a primary store for value to just essentially how I would receive payments and I would you know, convert it into my own local currency. As the means of income. And so I wasn't really badly affected by the shutdown, but that essentially closed up any avenue I had to being able to conduct commerce on the internet. I could not get work because I couldn't be paid. And, um, you know, but at that time, it was more of a hobby. It wasn't like a primary source of income or something that, you know, I heavily depended on. Uh, And so, if that happened, um, I don't remember the year precisely, but um, eventually I remember reading a slash dot article uh, about Bitcoin. And I think it was around 2011 that I first heard about Bitcoin. And uh, my first impression of it was this has to be a gimmick of sorts like you know I didn't really believe that it could work that way like you know I mean there were lots of promises that you know one was completely decentralized you didn't have any central server and comparing what bitcoin is to what egold was back then they were kind of like polar opposites in terms of architecture and in terms of how it worked and You know, I didn't initially really pay a lot of attention. I I did play around with it, you know, much later where I was like, okay, you know, let me kind of like verify some of these claims for myself. And I remember, you know, trying to do a transaction to a friend and, you know, got the person to install a wallet and, you know, I got some Bitcoins off of a, a faucet that I was able to send. And, you know, I sent the Bitcoin and... They received it and you know, I was like, okay, why don't you try sending it back to me and let me see if I would receive it. And the same thing happened. I received it, and I was like, hmm. So, you know, I, I started, you know, I think the light bulb just went on in my head where I was like, if this thing really, really catches on, I think it could change the world. And um, I mean, several years later, we're having this discussion now and it's apparent that Bitcoin really has changed the world. And that was how I came into contact with Bitcoin for
0: the first time. That's really awesome. And uh, I can imagine how exciting it probably was to receive your first set of Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, It wasn't so exciting, really. I, I mean, I, I thought, OK, this is actually kind of like an interesting technology. I think uh, it could really, really make uh, a, a significant impact on the world if, um, you know, if it actually did work like at scale. and um, just looking back now, at that event and seeing how much of a, a, a big leap really was, I think I can say to um, a lot of confidence that Bitcoin really has changed the world as we know it today. And um, yeah. I'm really excited to have really been kind of like, well, I wasn't at the very, very beginning, but I was around during the early days and to have seen how the technology has matured has been really, really uh, gratifying.
0: Yeah, it's it's really cool how far Bitcoin has come. So, at what point did you start looking into the technology of Bitcoin? Because when you introduced yourself, you said you're into a lot of all these things and integrations and stuff like that. When did you start looking into the technology? Was it at that point where you started using Bitcoin, or was it much later?
1: So, I think it was. There, there's so many things about Bitcoin. I think I think with trying to understand bitcoin you really have to consider a lot of things and there are kind of number of facets to it that um unless you actually try as much as possible to understand as many of these um you might end up actually getting only a very limited understanding of what bitcoin is uh, so there's the aspect of it that involves the technology and that was around 2014 um, when actually I even had a presentation, I have a number of people who uh, still remember that day to uh, to this very date. In fact, I I was having a conversation with one of them yesterday, um, who told me, "Hey Tim, do you remember in 2014?" And he was bragging to one of his friends that you know I gave him his first Bitcoin, and I was like, "Yeah, I remember that time. You know, I think Bitcoin was like maybe a hundred dollars or so." Back then, and I was at this event where I was talking about the technology of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin could, you know, really change uh, the game where uh, s- applications like international remittances or international payments is concerned. And you know, just to get people kind of like, you know, to wet their appetites a bit and get them to have a little taste, I kind of offered to give uh, all the attendees there who indicated interest. Uh, A small fraction of bitcoin um to like you know just get playing around with technology see how it works and you know maybe it might become something really big someday Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um and that was the technology um you know i was fascinated with the technology i loved the fact that um you didn't require any registration really to use bitcoin your computer or your mobile phone could quite easily generate a Public and the private key pair. And, you know, you could instantly actually receive Bitcoin. Um, and for me, that was really, really groundbreaking. It was like an entire paradigm change in the way I saw uh, digital currency. It's compared to all the previous examples, like I mentioned, Eagle, where you had to register, you know, with a website, put in your email address, uh, it was pretty much like every other. Web application. Uh, and that was kind of like how we understood the web uh, to work. But Bitcoin kind of really, really changed that. I, I think the, the most um, parallel comparison will be a technology like BitTorrent. Um, and so I was really fascinated with the technology, but I think it was until probably around 2016, probably 2017 that i started to understand bitcoin not just for its technological impact but more about its monetary impact and so that's where i started to understand things like the origins of money you know trying to understand the currency that i had grown up with the naira trying to understand the us dollar how does bitcoin compare in terms of being a money And, you know, understanding the implications of sound money and how it really could change the way actually society works. And um, I think, like I mentioned, having that complementary understanding of Bitcoin, where it's like, okay, there is the technological aspect, which is all the blockchain thing, you know, all the, the technology behind the cryptography and all that, but also understanding the economic side. Um, where Bitcoin is not just a cryptocurrency, but it's sound money and the reasons why it's sound money um, was what kind of like really made me have that holistic understanding of Bitcoin. I think, you know, a lot of people who have kind of gone down this path liken it to falling into a rabbit hole because, you know, it's, you just realize that you're just beginning to understand what bitcoin is and what its implication would be in in society
0: yeah exactly and like it's like the more you learn about bitcoin you start seeing that there there's more to it it keeps opening you up to several twists and turns and labyrinths that you just can't have enough of it but like for for example for a newbie who is just getting into bitcoin i mean from what i've seen so far a lot of us are new into the space they we looked at it from the monetary aspect let's say for example this newbie also wants to go and look at it from the technological aspect what would be the best angle to look at it from and how would be like what would you advise that person and where should they start from when it looks when they're looking at it from the side of technology
1: good question um and i have actually struggled with um with this particular concept like how do i make an uh, a newbie who is probably not you know a computer science major who will struggle with understanding what electric curve digital signatures is for example um uh how how, how do i make them actually understand the technology behind it how do i make them comprehend you know what it's all about and i think um Really, I think a lot of times we, we get so carried away, you know, as technologists with, you know, all the really, you know, technical buzz terms and, you know, all the jargon. Uh, but I think I remember um, a colleague of mine who tweeted, you know, had a tweet storm, you know, sometime a while back. And what I really picked from from that was how he likened Bitcoin transactions to instant messaging. I mean, today, you know, you, nearly all of us here in Africa, we use WhatsApp as one of the primary means of communication. And we forget how communications used to be before we had, you know, mobile internet, not just talking about, you know, fixed line internet, but like when you could access the internet on your phone. Um, The only way you could communicate with other Telephone users or mobile phone users was either you place a phone call or you sent a text message, mm-hmm. and so we would incur international or roaming charges if we wanted to do that. And you know, most communication was mostly local. But these days, you can't really you. There's no distinction between you sending a WhatsApp message to someone who is you know in your living room to sending a, a WhatsApp message to someone who is, you know, like 10 time zones away from you. it's It, it almost o- occurs within the same time frame, And we don't think in terms of, oh, I'm going to send a text message, and it's going to cost me a certain number of uh, currency units for every 160 characters. We don't think that way anymore, right? In fact, mm-hmm. we barely actually even think about the actual kilobytes that are uh, involved in in relaying a message. Yeah, that's and true. You would say we would say that the internet has democratized communications. Right? We don't these days. You know, I mean, we're having this conversation right now over the internet. Not it doesn't really occur to us these days that oh, we're actually using the internet. We just want to get things done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and it's very similar when we're talking about Bitcoin. Um, I think a time is going to come when, you know, the generation that comes after us will imagine, will not be able to imagine a world without Bitcoin, like, how did you guys actually say you used to send money again, you know, it would be, it would be a thing that, you know, people look and say, wow, okay, this was really uh, antique uh, and a very archaic way of of sending money, you know, across continents. Um, And so, when I, when, I try to explain, when I try to explain Bitcoin technology, the first thing I actually do is to explain what a Bitcoin transaction really is. And I think the best way really to think about it is what exactly is a Bitcoin transaction? And I, and I think that, you know, at the very core, a Bitcoin transaction is really just a message. It's, it's really just that. Like, even at the very, very basic level, it's just a message. And it's a a special message because it contains instructions that um, basically um, attempts to transfer value from one person or one entity to another. That's basically what it's all about. So when we think about Bitcoin, what is a Bitcoin transaction? It's really just a message uh, transferring value from one or more entities to one or more other entities. Um, and then you know a lot of other things now starts to uh, come into play. And then we start to think about things like, okay, uh, why is it so special? Why is Bitcoin special? And so you know the first thing we need to un- kind of understand is that this is not the first time that there has been an attempt to create money that could be sent over the internet. There have been many attempts. and at the very core, is um, some of the problems we have with digital technology. So when we talk about uh, digital messages, for example, the first thing that comes to mind is, let's look at a picture of a cat, for example. Um, I can replicate that picture a million times. And I can send that message or that picture to all of my friends and they can all have copies of that image on their devices in seconds. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now, if we were to implement a money that um, could be transmitted electronically, we would have the same problem. And as you know, money really isn't valuable unless it is scarce. So um, it doesn't really become valuable if I can send you the same money that I'm sending to 20 other people. There needs to be some kind of mechanism that prevents uh, my ability to make multiple copies and send that same currency to more um, or many more people. And we call that term in computer science, the double spend problem, right? Which is a situation where I can spend say a, a, a currency digitally to one or more people or rather to like more than just one person um and so for a couple of years uh, scientists have grappled with how do we create a system a digital system where i can ensure scarcity
2: how Mm -hmm. can
1: i guarantee scarcity and as it turns out um bitcoin was the first Uh, implementation of a technology that guaranteed digital scarcity. And the way Bitcoin is able to uh, ensure that is first and foremost, to use a a mechanism um, for, first of all, when we talk about decentralization, the essential thing is that uh, we have a system that works without a central server. Now, like I mentioned, Bitcoin is not the first first attempt at digital money. As a matter of fact, PayPal existed before there was Bitcoin. And PayPal was a means you could send digital money on the internet, but the problem with PayPal was that you needed a central entity to actually do the job of ensuring digital scarcity.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: how do I mean? That means if I send money to Mary, for example, then I can't send money to um, Alice um, and or that same currency unit to Alice. Well, what PayPal would do in that instance is that it would block that message and say, this um, is invalid because you have already sent the money to Mary.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and being able to do that in a decentralized fashion uh, turned out to be extremely difficult until, you know, as we know, famous Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, came up with a, a system or the way in which that could
0: I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I just wanted to step in and tell you a little bit about saving Bitcoin with Bitnob. The minute I started using Bitnob, it changed the way I invest in Bitcoin forever. With Bitnob, I can create a plan, and it automatically invests in Bitcoin for me using the dollar cost average strategy. That's it, nice and easy. Download Bitnob, B-I-T-N-O-B, and watch your Bitcoin investments grow.
1: Now, remember when I said Bitcoin transactions are essentially messages? Um, in a decentralized network where there are no uh, entities that you know, have authority over others, where every peer is equal, um, the way generally you get messages across is through what you call gossip, mm-hmm. right? So I get a message that says, uh, Mary wants to send, um, I would call it five bitcoins to John. Mm-hmm. And then that message, I receive that message from one of my peers, and then I'm able to check that message, see that, okay, indeed, Mary has those five bitcoins that she wants to send to John. And I'm like, okay, that seems to be okay. And then I send that message across to all my other peers, except the one that I receive, obviously because I don't need to send it back to the person who told me about it, because then that will be redundant. right?
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: that's how it propagates throughout the entire network until uh, such a time as everybody on the network has heard that message that, mary wants to send five bitcoins to john um but when we're talking about networks where you know we're talking about peers who are on the same level um one especially when it has to do with something like money um the important thing now becomes how do i trust that the message that i've received is uh is true right it's the truth now mary could actually be malicious right and she could Actually, say, okay, you know what? I'm connected to eight peers and I'm going to tell half of them that I'm sending five bitcoins. Now, all she has is five bitcoins. Okay. So we know that she's sending her entire balance to John. Um, and so she's going to send five bitcoins to John and only tell four of her eight peers. And then the remaining four is going to give them a different story, right? A different message. In this case, I would use Peter as a recipient she's sending those same five bitcoins that she has and everybody knows that she has to Peter right, and so one half of the net one half of her peers. Uh, get the message that she- Mary is sending five bitcoins to john and then another uh, half of her peers get a different message saying Mary is sending five bitcoins to Peter now. At some point there's gonna be a conflict, right? Because what's gonna happen is that one of her peers that have received one version of the message will receive another message saying, Mary is sending five bitcoins. So let me take, for example, the peer that actually first received the message that Mary is sending five bitcoins to John, um, suddenly receives a message from one of her other peers that, Mary is sending five bitcoins to Peter. Now that's that's not possible, right? Because again, that's the problem we're talking about, the double spend problem. Mm-hmm. Mary is attempting to double spend her five bitcoins. And so there's a conflict. Now, which of those two versions of, of, of the story should we believe? And that is the primary problem that Bitcoin solves.
0: I actually really like how that analogy of messages, um, because it makes it extremely relatable. Um, you know, and for those who are newbies in the space, it, I mean, we all send messages to each other. So just thinking about how having a specific message going from like going to a direct person, knowing that, okay, we want to send a certain amount to a particular person. I mean, and that message is known to everybody. But then The question now is, what is that system that ensures that that information is true? Because since the Bitcoin um, system is decentralized, it's not controlled by anybody, how does it, in a sense, how does it move on its own such that all these, there there are no controversies as to who's receiving what and how much?
1: Exactly correct. Um, And I think, you know, generally what we regard as um, that mechanism through which the entire network is able to converge on one single truth is what we call consensus. So you might have heard about, you know, different kinds of consensus mechanisms. Um, and the one that Bitcoin uses is what we call proof of work. Right? So in our previous example where we had mary attempting to double spend her five bitcoins the honest truth is that any of those two messages is correct but both of them cannot be correct at the same time so either we decide that mary sent her five bitcoins to john or we decide that mary sent her five bitcoins to peter but then remember this is going to be an extremely impossible situation because why would I decide that it is John who gets the five bitcoins and not Peter, while somebody else may agree or prefer that you know Peter was the one who received the five bitcoins. Um, and so in such a network, we would basically never agree if mm-hmm. we were just relying entirely on just gossip, right? Oh, it's what I heard first that I'm going to go with. Um, And so that is where proof of work actually comes into play. Proof of work is a system through which we select a peer to make that decision on which of uh, the two versions, or it could even be multiple versions of the truth that we end up going with. Remember Mm -hmm. I said that actually any of those two could be correct, but we need to find a way in which we all kind of agree on one version. And so what, we, what proof of work um, essentially involves is that, okay, we need a way to select a peer who will um, get to select which version of these transactions uh, is what gets recorded as the truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so proof of work actually you know is, is that mechanism through which. We do that selection. And basically, what it involves is we require that um, one of the peers, it could even be intense computation. And that computation is such that it involves um, expending resources in order to arrive at a number. But it's very easy for us to verify that that number is correct. So I'll give you an instance. Let's say I have. Uh, two die in my hands, right? Mm-hmm. It's a six-sided die, and we all take turns in rolling the die, and uh, we're all trying to come uh, uh, come up with a number. And let's say the number we're trying to come up with is uh, double six, right? So mm-hmm. one die you know, rolls six, and the other die rolls six. And so we all take turns. Now, you roll the die, you get three, four. Okay, we've not gotten it, so we'll pass on. The next person rolls, they get 4-4. That's not still 6-6 that we're looking for. And then we keep rolling the die and taking turns until eventually one of us is actually going to get double six and that person wins that round. Mm -hmm. And so we decide that, okay, this is going to be the person who will tell us the truth out, out of all these different versions of the truth. And we all agree that of course it's easy for us to see that that person actually got six six, which is what we're looking for. So it's easy for us to agree that, you know, that person gets to be elected to to play that role. And so that's generally what we do. Now, Bitcoin has this, um, you you might think and say, okay, um, what then happens if we find a way to more quickly arrive at that number six. On the Bitcoin network, yes, it is possible that you might have someone who has more of uh, the ability to compute those magic numbers that, um, you know, takes some resource to be able to compute, but it's very easy for us to verify. Um, but we're all trying to ensure that the network converges uh, periodically, a, a predictable, uh, 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 to be able to co- to, be able to converge uh. Um, in a periodic manner, in a, in a predictable periodic manner, and on the Bitcoin network, that predictable periodic manner is ten minutes. So we we generally are always trying to ensure that every ten minutes the network is able to converge on the truth. Mm-hmm. Every ten minutes, another version of the truth. And um, if we if if the network now starts if you know because of technology, um, somehow. One of the computers has found a way to gain an advantage, you know, it's faster, and so it can compute those numbers much faster. Then that interval now becomes maybe five minutes instead of 10 minutes. And so it makes it such that the network is able to converge much faster, but we then lose that advantage of having a predictable period over which we're able to do that. And it also even creates. An avenue through which there can be some centralization, right? Because now um, it's pretty much just a race. We need to find out who can actually compute numbers the most, the fastest. But we want to be able to ensure that um, you know the network is periodic. And so Bitcoin has something called a difficulty adjustment algorithm that ensures that the network is not moving faster than ten minutes on average. for every of those synchronization events. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the layman's terms, you know, what people might've heard about Bitcoin, You know, a lot of times people talk about this thing called the blockchain. And the blockchain is just essentially just that data structure that allows us to record all these transactions. And so every time we have a, a synchronization event, uh, a block actually gets added to that blockchain. Mm -hmm. And the blockchain basically is just a historic record of all the transactions that have occurred on the network. Uh, And so that's essentially how the network actually gets to synchronize with all its other peers um, based on the events that have happened, events like transactions that have occurred. Um, I hope I'm not getting too much into the weeds. No, no, it's
0: it's quite interesting and exciting. Well, one question popped into my mind. What if you have multiple transactions happening at the same time? How does not Bitcoin technology ensure that these transactions are done in a speedy manner? Because, for example, if I want to send Bitcoin to you, what is, the, what is that technology that ensures that you get, get Satoshis quickly so that you don't have to wait a long time? Because if you're saying it takes maybe about 10 minutes to do all this to arrive at a consensus, how, what if there's several transactions happening at the same time? So,
1: before I answer that question, um, I would like to address the reason why Bitcoin is decentralized. There is actually, you know, like I said, before there was Bitcoin, we've had several attempts or we've had several digital currencies, but they've all been, you know, centralized one way or the other. And there's a reason why um, Bitcoin requires decentralization in order to work. And the reason is because the application is monitoring. Um, if we want to design a monetary system that is open to all, that is that cannot be censored because there's no central choke point from which you can say, okay, if I shut down this server, then I shut down the entire monitoring network. Um, then you see that the only way you can achieve a network that is resilient against censorship, that is resilient against um, disruptions, is that it is decentralized. And so that is why you know we have the system whereby um, the entire Bitcoin network itself is not just one computer. It's not just one miner. It's all the computers that are on the network, so the only way you can shut down that network is to shut down all the nodes simultaneously and. As it is right now, the only way you can achieve that is to probably nuke the planet, you know and completely destroy the planet at the same time, and that is assuming that. someone does not manage to get one of the bitcoin nodes you know off of the planet before you're able to do that. Um, So, in other words, it's impossible to do that. It's impossible to shut down the communications, but it only affects a portion of the network. It doesn't affect the entire network. So that is why decentralization is critical to the operation and the success of Bitcoin. Now, with that decentralization, it means that we have to be very thoughtful about How the network is designed so that people can continue to run nodes. Um, And so to tie it back to your question, uh, the question now becomes, um, you know, how do how does the Bitcoin network keep up with an ever increasing number of transactions? So everybody on the planet now wants to do a Bitcoin transaction. Can the Bitcoin network keep up to that? Well, the question is. Yes and no. And I would explain the no first, right? The no is because in order to achieve decentralization and to ensure that people can run nodes, it means that we have to be thoughtful about how much data actually gets added to this blockchain. Uh, As of today, the blockchain is maybe roughly around, you know, 500 gigabytes thereabouts. Um, You would need, you know, a, a, a tremendous amount of storage to be able to contain that. But that's the entire history of all the transactions that have occurred on the Bitcoin network. Um, and that is valuable because, in addition to uh, decentralization, one of the other key things is um, your ability to verify and not necessarily trust that this version of the network is what it says it is. You no. Know? Um, And so every node that gets bootstrapped on the network goes through that process of downloading every Bitcoin transaction or every block that has existed and verifies, computes every of the parameters and verifies that all the information that is contained in this block is correct before accepting it. And so it's not enough that we're trying to keep the, the network progressing at 10 minute intervals But it's also something that we need to be thoughtful about because every time transactions are added, that increases the burden of the amount of storage that's required to bootstrap a node or to even keep a node operational. So, with that in mind, what that suggests is that we can't contain all the transactions in the world um, at the same time, right? We have Mm -hmm. to think about other ways through which we can achieve that level of scale. Uh, where everyone on the planet is able to do a Bitcoin transaction. And that has led to the development of what we call layer two technologies that do not necessarily require an on-chain transaction. That means a transaction that gets ultimately recorded on the blockchain, Mm -hmm. uh, but something that can use a proxy where, okay, we can do a number of transactions off-chain, but we only settle on chain as is necessary. I'll give you an example. And this is not a very strange concept because the entire financial network actually operates this way. When you do a transaction and you're sending money from your bank account, for example, to another bank account, um, depending on what part of the world you are, if you're in a country like Nigeria, for example, um, you know, that transaction is virtually instantaneous. Mm -hmm. You send the money and, you know, the recipient is able to receive the funds, you know, literally seconds, so maybe a couple of minutes afterwards. But then that is not where the transaction actually gets settled. Yes, they've received value and they can go ahead to use the money for other things. But at the end of the day, there's what is called settlement that now happens between the financial institutions. It says, okay, throughout the entire day, I sent a total of uh, 5 million naira and I received a total of 8 million naira. Okay, mm-hmm. so I received more than I sent. So basically when we're going to do settlement, I expect to see uh, an increase of 3 million naira in my balance with the central bank, right? And so every other bank that is participating in that network also goes through that same process of doing all their reconciliations and settlements within themselves. You know, and then someone will check and then if there are any discrepancies, they would attempt to resolve that that situation. Um, and usually because they go through centralized parties, um, you know, sometimes they may have to escalate to, you know, maybe the 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 set settlement partner in order to resolve that issue if there are any discrepancies. Um, with Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network itself or the Bitcoin blockchain is the settlement layer. Okay. That is where all settlements happen. And that is where all, once a transaction is recorded on the blockchain, it is considered to be permanent. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we could use that same, um, that same technique, we could actually achieve that same level of transactions where, okay, we only need to make one on-chain transaction or maybe two on-chain transactions a day for settlement purposes, right? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we could have like maybe hundreds of thousands or even millions of transactions occur on a second layer, right? And um, I don't know if you heard about the Lightning Network, but this is essentially what the Lightning Network uh, sets out to achieve, uh, which is facilitate transactions occurring on a second layer off chain uh, with only settlement happening occasionally um, on chain. So it's even better than what we have with the financial network, because you don't have to even settle uh, every 24 hours. The settlement can be postponed indefinitely, right? To only such a time when there's a dispute, for example.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so that's how Bitcoin is able to, to solve that problem of being able to handle um, an ever increasing number of transactions.
0: This, this is so exciting. And the reason why I'm so excited about it is the knowledge that there's continuity with Bitcoin. You know, the fact that it's decentralized, the fact that it's able to carry out those processes without any third party. So it's just so fascinating how it runs itself. And I don't think I'll ever be able to get over that because it's just hearing this is, I don't know, I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> but um, so now so, I want wonder- to. That's why it's
1: called magic internet money.
0: I know, right? It's it's just perfect. Um, so I want to get into um the new update. So I know it, it happened sometime late um last year, 2021, where we had the tap root upgrade. Um, and there was a lot of buzz about this on um, Twitter. So, and I know and I'm very sure. That a lot of newbies saw it, but they had no idea what Taproot was. Uh, maybe the only thing they could relate with was maybe they saw it in a biology book somewhere. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but what is Taproot, and why is the up, or why was the upgrade so important for Bitcoin?
1: Um, I don't think I can explain Taproot without or justify Taproot without revisiting uh, an event that happened earlier. And this happened in 2017, where we had the SegWit upgrade. Do you remember that?
0: Yeah, I I do.
1: (laughs) Right. So uh, SegWit was uh, one of those updates that we had on Bitcoin uh, that was designed to not only fix some existing problems, but also to set a path for future upgrades, which is very, very critical uh, when we talk about Bitcoin. Um Bitcoin is money. Like, you know, we're talking about trillions of dollars right now um of value that is locked within the Bitcoin blockchain um as we speak. And and so you can imagine if you're if you're dealing with technology that is, you know, at the very Helm of a uh, trillion dollars of value, um, it is only um, it, you, you require that you know we be cons- conservative, right? Um, it, it's only it's only it's only proper. It's only um, it only shows that you know you're being responsible when you're conservative with changes that could potentially affect the stability of the network, um, and so. Um, the need to be very thoughtful about upgrades um, is has become even more important. Uh, and so, what Segwit was able to achieve, so without going too much into what Segwit is and you know what it does, is um, to fix some issues that you know we we've had with Bitcoin, and to also create a path for future upgrades. One of those future upgrades is Taproot. Um, And so, we wouldn't have Taproot as it is today without SegWit. Now, uh, remember when I said Bitcoin transactions are essentially messages? Um, There is some really fancy, you know, cryptography and math that goes on into… If it's just a message, for example, can someone actually just fraudulently create a message that moves value from someone else's account to another, well, that is where the cryptography really comes into play. Um, Bitcoin transactions primarily require secrets, right? Um, And those secrets are what protects the network. Um, Once that secret is exposed or compromised, uh, then whatever value has been locked to that secret um, now becomes compromised as well.
0: Hey, hey, it's me again. Have you heard of the Lightning Network? It's an easy way of making Bitcoin payments faster and cheaper. With Bitknob, you can send and receive any amount of money in Bitcoin across the world. mm mm-hmm, you heard that right. Across the world, with little or no fees and in seconds. For speedy Bitcoin transactions, choose Bitnob. Download Bitnob, B-I-T-N-O-B, on your favorite app store today. Or visit the website at bitnob.com. That's bitno B.com.
1: Now, because we don't have identity systems of Bitcoin where it's like, okay, you have to prove your identity by, um, you know, showing an ID card or showing a password in order to be able to, um, you know, transfer value. Um, Bitcoin relies very heavily on, um, you know, cryptography in order to do that. The, the cryptography really is just about you finding a way to prove that you know a secret um, in order for you to be able to send Bitcoin. So generally when I ask, you know, say I wanted to send Bitcoin to you now, Mary, I'd ask you for a Bitcoin address. What is generally happening is that your wallet is, is, has a secret and it's able to generate some, you know, um, public aspect of the secret mm-hmm. that it can share publicly and say, okay, you know what? I have a secret, but I've derived this public part that I can show you. And if you send money to this public part that I have showed you, I can spend that money by proving I know the secret part of this pair, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a secret part, there's a public part. And the only way you can spend whatever is sent to the public part is to demonstrate that you know the secret. And the way you demonstrate that knowledge is by what you call a signature. It's very similar to you know when someone gives you a check and says, okay, you wanna actually issue uh, an instruction to your bank to pay someone, and then you sign on the check. And that signature is basically just something, a secret sign that uh proves that you know something that the bank also knows that only you can produce Um, and the digital equivalent for that is what we call digital signatures so it's not too difficult to actually understand that Mm -hmm. digital signatures is the way we prove that we know the secret Um, and so that has always been how bitcoin has worked right you know the way we move value on the bitcoin network is just to prove that we um, know a certain secret by creating a signature uh, in order to do that. Um, now Taproot um, is an upgrade that um, allows us to improve Bitcoin in a number of ways. Um, when Bitcoin was invented, it used a, a cryptographic scheme called uh, ECDSA. You know, it stands for um, elliptic, elliptic Curve Digital Signature uh, Algorithm, right? And uh, it allows us to be able to generate signatures uh, from secrets in a certain manner. Um, but what the Taproot upgrade actually allowed us to do is to introduce a new digital signature scheme that we call uh, Schnorr signatures. Now, if we if the old one has always worked and it's worked well, why do we need a new one?
0: Exactly. Um, yeah. well, That's what I was curious about.
1: <laughs> why do we need a new one? Um, it turns out that you know when Satoshi was actually kind of like writing the Bitcoin white paper, and um, you know he also wrote the first implementation of Bitcoin. Um, snow signatures were around then, so um, you know why didn't he use snow signatures then? Why now? But it turns out that um, the snow signatures that we use right now was just um, you know coming out of it. It was originally patented. Uh, And so it wasn't really something that you could use in public domain, right? And for an open source software where you're going to reveal all the details and use the the scheme, um, it just wasn't compatible with Bitcoin at that time. And part of the reason why uh, it wasn't included, like I said, it was just coming out of its patent period, um, was that there wasn't a lot of public implementations of it yet. And uh, there wasn't a lot of review, also uh, of the system, so instead of um, using something that hasn't been properly peer reviewed or doesn't have sufficient, uh, you know, public libraries yet that are safe to use and you know don't have any backdoors that or vulnerabilities that could be exploited, um, Satoshi made the decision then to rather than wait uh, to have all those conditions fulfilled, to go with the next best thing, which was ECBSA. Um, and so given that sufficient time has passed, um, we thought, okay, let's, we could actually now use snow signatures and snow signatures are actually better than ECDS in a number of ways. Um, one of them is that those signatures are slightly smaller. Remember, you know, one of the things that we're very, very, um, I would say obsessed about is how do we ensure that the network is decentralized? So the less data we have to store, even if it's something as little as two bytes, um, those two bytes can add up to be significant over time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you would notice that Bitcoiners tend to obsess even over the littlest optimizations because (laughs) they they do have compounding effects. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, Due to the fact that Schnorr signatures actually allowed us to do everything ECDSA could do, but we could consume less space, it was already a significant improvement and something we could use. Um, besides that, we also have the fact that it has this really interesting property that can even have even larger implications. Now, remember when I said that Bitcoin transactions are basically just you proving that you know a secret. Um, Even in the corporate world, for example, you can have a mandate in an account that says, in order to move funds from this account, I require the signatures of party A and party B. Mm -hmm. And we call that multi-signature. And we have that too in Bitcoin, uh, where you have multi-signature schemes, where in order to move funds or in order to spend a certain coin, you need to produce uh, a certain number of signatures, right? Now, when you're presenting that message to the network, it turns out that with ECDSA, um, you have to present those signatures individually. So let us assume, for example, that we have a, I'm going to call it a Bitcoin account, but technically it's a Bitcoin address. And it requires both yourself and myself to sign uh, a message before those funds will be regarded as spendable, right? before that the instruction to spend those funds will be honored by the network in order for us to relay that message i have to sign the message you have to sign the message and then we have to include both your and my signatures so Mm -hmm. there'll be two distinct signatures that we have to communicate it turns out that with Schnorr, um we can combine those two signatures into one Now, imagine that your signature takes, let me use the technical term, um, let's say it takes uh, 66 bytes, and mine also takes 66 bytes. Mm -hmm. Now, in in such a situation, if we were to combine uh, those two signatures, we would basically be looking at 132 bytes. Okay, that's fine. But with Schnorr, when we combine your 66 bytes, With my 66 bytes, we get 66 bytes. So basically, it's like we combine the two, but we produce one signature that is unique in itself.
2: Mm -hmm. It turns
1: out that with ECDSA, we can't combine signatures that way, but we know we can. So imagine that we are saving 66 bytes for just a two party, you know, uh, multi signature scheme. It gets even much more. Impressive when we start having multiple um, in, uh, parties that are involved in that multi signature scheme. So, we've talked about the fact that just by the signature length themselves, Schnorr is better. But when we even start considering things like multi sig, um, it gets even better. And so, Taproot actually allowed us to be able to incorporate that. But that's not all Taproot is about. Um, the second thing, the second most important thing, really, about Taproot. Is um, again something technical, uh, but I'll, I'll try not to, to 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 bore you with the jargon. But <laughs> on the Bitcoin network, if you want to uh, spend certain coins, okay. So uh, I initially said that you know the way we actually are able to spend is that we reveal that we have uh, knowledge of the secret. That's at the very basic level. Besides that, Bitcoin actually allows us to add additional conditions under which coins can be spent. So we could have things like scripts or programs, or uh, I like to use the term contracts um, Mm -hmm. to encumber coins and say, okay, I'll give you an example. I can make a transaction that pays you, and you can only spend those Bitcoins. After Christmas of
0: 2022. Oh, that's cool. So, so you can you can yes. be very specific on how that I can Bitcoin. Very
1: specific on how a particular coin gets spent. So in that situation, despite the fact that you've provided a valid signature that shows that you know the secret, um, you also need to fulfill an additional condition, which is what's today's date? Is it December 25th, 2022? Oh no okay, then you can't spend those coins, The network will reject it, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're very interesting applications that you can use something like that. And there are other kinds of contracts that you can formulate uh, that do really interesting things. Like you can have, for example, I can say, okay, um, I want to create this transaction that pays Mary, and Mary can spend it after three days. But if Mary and myself, contribute signatures we can both spend it right now that's another interesting use case right Mm -hmm. so we could talk about things like escrows and you know um where you have um, uh, arbitrators and where you have like two or three kinds of threshold signature systems and all that Um, these are all really advanced use cases now the interesting thing about those is that prior to taproot if you wanted to uh say for example in this situation where it's like okay mary can spend this coin after three days just presenting a signature or um tim and mary can spend this coin immediately if they produce two signatures well it turns out that if you wanted to spend even in a situation where you were spending it just by yourself you had to tell the entire network that this is the entire script the script says tim and mary right now or marry after three days
2: Mm -hmm.
1: with taproot you can craft the transaction in such a way that you only reveal a part while still proving that there was this other condition that i'm not going to tell you but i can prove to you that it is a part of those conditions Um, and so it has certain privacy uh implications right where for example when you are spending the coin after three days, you don't have to tell the world that. Oh, Tim was also um, a a party to this. He could actually sign this with me, and you know we would broadcast the transaction. So, for a lot of people who kind of like do exotic kind of applications with you know spending conditions, um, this makes it really, really, really um, beneficial. Where I don't have to tell the entire network, and you know remember this what I just told you about Schloss signatures allowing uh, two parties to process a transaction and, and produce one signature. Mm-hmm. Um, the implication for privacy means the transaction, a multi-sig transaction looks like a regular single-sig transaction, a single-signature transaction. Uh, and so that has a lot of benefits in terms of uh, privacy. So, um, yeah, that's basically what what Taproot is. Of course, there are other um, really advanced use cases. And very similar to what we have for SegWit, um, there is also a, a scheme called TapScript that has um, a means through which we can have even future upgrades to Taproot um, as we have with future upgrades for uh, using SegWit.
0: Wow, that is so cool. And just to think about the different kinds of use cases that can come out of Taproot alone is so exciting. And this is just the early part of 2022. So imagine what, what we're going to see later down, down the line. And oh, oh my gosh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. so, so happy. <laughs>
1: there, there are lots of, uh, you know, lots of things that people are working on, uh, you know, that would only just open up you know, even more potential for the use of Bitcoin, and uh, I'm also very excited really to see um, all the work that is going on in Bitcoin, and you know the kinds of uh, improvements that which we, sh- we could be looking forward to uh, having on the Bitcoin network in the future.
0: Is there one in particular that you're you're excited about?
1: Yes. Um, so there is this uh, there's this upgrade called uh, Check. Uh, template verify Uh, Mm -hmm. it's called opctv there's been quite a lot of conversations about it recently in twitter and you know all the uh, spaces where bitcoiners congregate and i'm i'm especially very very excited about that particular upgrade for a number of reasons Um, and i think one of the things that opctv will bring to bitcoin is to make bitcoin even safer to hold now, I I told you about how in 2014 I you know gave a number of people you know small fragments of Bitcoin, and one of the things that has made me you know the most sad about a lot of those people is that you know sometimes they they come to me and ask me, "Hey Tim, do you remember uh, what my private key was?" Um, oh my gosh! 2014, and I'm like, no, I didn't keep a copy of your <laughs> private key you know, I only help you set up a wallet, but, you know, I never kept the seed or anything like that. And I'm like, what happened? And they're like, oh, well, you know, I sold the phone, I gave it to someone or my phone crashed and, you know, I reformatted it. And I'm like, you know, that Bitcoin is gone, you know, Mm -hmm. it's donated to the system. And, uh, you know, it's almost virtually impossible to recover at this stage. Mm -hmm. Um, But what, you know, we would have with upgrades like OpCTV is that we'll be able to have things like vaults, right? Where, I mean, right now you could do some of those things, but there are lots of really advanced use cases where you can use OpCTV to make it possible for people to um, safely store Bitcoin, um, such that if, for example, their secrets uh, gets compromised, um, you can't really steal their Bitcoin in the sense that they've locked the conditions for spending it in such a way that you can only spend it to a certain address or a certain group of addresses mm-hmm. I and mean, then the implication for that is enormous you know all these things we hear about or oh, this exchange got hacked, and you know bitcoins were stolen from your wallet and all that these things are going to become less and less common once technologies or improvements like opc tv start getting not only gets activated on the network, but also starts getting used by uh, this entity so in terms of the implications for custody of bitcoin, I think that's going to be. Is significant is significant improvement in uh, safety, and you know when we talk about bitcoin, I always like to regard it as a multi generational asset it's it's something that hopefully not only will you be able to pass your uh, uh, offspring, but that they'll be able to pass, pass on to theirs as well. Mm-hmm. And when you think about how keys, you know, you have, there's a lot that goes into securing keys properly, Um, really, really, really reduces the burden in terms of, you know, what is required in order to ensure that, you know, those assets are, are kept safe. The other improvements that of brings, but this is, for me, this is like, you know, one of the most uh, interesting and most uh, important ones.
0: Yeah, and I I agree with you because that aspect of, you know, not being able to recover keys is is something that happens a lot. (laughs) And when you hear stories, it is absolutely heartbreaking. So I'm excited. I think I can't wait for the upgrade as well. So um, just another question. And... And it just came up when you were talking about all these upgrades. Who does the upgrades? Like, is it a body? Because since, since, since Bitcoin is a decentralized system, system, yeah, so how do the upgrades yes. come about? Who initiates?
1: These upgrades generally start with a proposal, right? And we call them uh, Bitcoin improvement proposals. And so. A developer, and this would generally just be, and sometimes these beeps are actually not even written by developers, but someone who actually understands Bitcoin, understands, you know, maybe even the cryptography, and has an idea for an improvement, uh, they would generally start out by maybe having some discussion about it. Um, and they would propose it to, you know, some of the other Bitcoin developers. Uh, they'll take a look at it and you know they might say well this sounds good why don't you write a, a formal proposal for this and so that process will go through what we call a bitcoin improvement proposal we have um a we have a mechanism for tracking all those improve uh, all those proposals and um once it gets to the proposal stage, uh generally It then falls on the author or someone who knows how to, if if the proposal is actually well written, then it should be easy for someone to to be able to not only propose it, but actually write code that implements that, okay? So um, if I, I come up with a way, for example, to encode private keys, I'm just using that as a simple example,
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: something that's not being done right now, but I think, you know, has very, very useful um, applications for Bitcoin, uh, and I've gotten as far as writing a proposal, um, I would then go ahead to now actually implement it, right? So, I mean, no one really can review uh, um, an improvement without there being actual code. And so, once you've written the code, um, it now becomes... An issue of okay how do we go about reviewing it and then you have uh, other bitcoin contributors review the code look into it and say okay this looks like an improvement you know that could actually be very useful to the network and then we could you know consider how we go about using it now there are different kinds of proposals there are some proposals that affect the consensus mechanism And those ones are generally the hardest ones to to make it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it like I said, you know, this is it's become, you know, a very, very important asset. And you know, the only judicious thing really to do is to ensure that, you know, we make changes uh conservatively. We don't want changes that will destabilize the system. You know, there has been there are many projects in the space that have had, you know, these kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin too has had, you know, stability problems in the past, but thankfully they haven't been catastrophic. And so it's only just taught us to be more conservative when we're looking at changes that could affect that stability. So anything that has to do with the consensus of the network, um, that's going to be very, very, it's going to be criticized very closely before it gets accepted. and so once you get that general acceptance, even if it's something that changes consensus um, and there's sufficient support on the network, one of the things that would um, generally um, end up happening is that there'll be a proposal on how do we activate. So very similar to how Taproot happened, uh, where we have this activation mechanism and there are several kinds of uh, activation mechanisms that can be employed, Um, but the general idea is that we find a way to signal support uh, for that upgrade and once the support goes above a certain threshold. uh, And that support can be sustained. um, The general network would activate that particular feature once that gets activated, uh, then it can be used. Uh, bitcoin generally stays away from what we call hard forks mm-hmm. uh, and the simple reason is because we don't want changes we don't necessarily want changes that breaks compatibility of course um, and when i say breaks compatibility uh, imagine if for example um 10 years ago right you mined bitcoin and you had it in a bitcoin address that you've never touched right mm-hmm. and then 50 years into the future um maybe your your children now want to spend that bitcoin and use it for something and then you try to create a transaction and broadcast it on the network and it gets rejected why was it rejected oh well during that 50-year period there were a number of changes that occurred on the network that made those old addresses in uh, incompatible with the current day transactions or the current day addresses well that is not a good thing at all.
0: True. That's so, a disaster.
1: <laughs> that is a disaster. And, and and those are the kinds of changes that we don't necessarily want on Bitcoin. Um, it has to be something that is like, you know, if we don't fix this problem, the network is going to grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will still um, go through a very significant amount of uh, resistance before that is ever considered. And so, you know, it's almost... A given that if you have certain changes that are going to be made to the protocol that would make it backwards incompatible uh, you're more likely going to you're more likely going to get a no as an answer uh, and so you know we we generally use what we call soft forks we are backwards compatible they are only um upgrades that apply to new nodes and they are done in such a way that it does not affect the functionality or the usefulness of any nodes that refuse to upgrade on the network, or for whatever reason, you know they're just not upgrading. So um, does that answer your question about how these changes are actually uh, implemented?
0: Yes, it does, and uh, it is quite comforting as well <laughs> because you know you you wouldn't want anything bad to happen to the network, especially now that a lot of people we have a lot of people joining in every day. Um, so yeah. It's, it's, you know, anytime I have a guest on the show, I I get more and more excited about Bitcoin and now knowing more about the technology behind it, how it runs is just extremely um, exhilarating for me because just, you know, you fall in love with Bitcoin. I say this in almost every episode, I fall in love with Bitcoin like every single time when you learn something new and I believe that our audience um, also appreciates this because you know, it's not like, you know, when you're when you have or when you own Bitcoin, you're not just owning something of value. You're owning something that is helping a network like you're part of a network. You're part of something bigger. Um, you're part of a mission, a purpose. So learning about all these things is just extremely um, it's it's a wonderful it's wonderful like you you feel very happy and proud to be a bitcoiner to be honest yeah so thank you so much for coming to the show thank you for sharing your insights and i really appreciate you
1: you're a great interviewer so it oh that
0: to, that means a lot the
1: questions <laughs>
0: oh thank you that means a lot you made my day <laughs> what an amazing episode hope you enjoyed it as much as we have subscribe to know when next we release a new episode drop a review let us know your thoughts about the podcast follow bitnob on twitter at bitnob underscore official that's at b-i-t-n-o-b underscore o-f-f-i-c-i-a-l see you in the next episode